This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Malad. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 1. This season highlights the stories of immigrants and refugees from all around the world, as well as some organizations that work with and for these beautiful people. Today's episode is the first in a two-part series on immigration law. I had the pleasure of interviewing Autumn Nelson, Rocia Rivera, and Carla Grabster, the incredible trio from the law firm The Lawyer Lady in Longmont, Colorado. They were so gracious to sit down with me and explain in very practical terms what the general public needs to know when it comes to having a better understanding of immigration in the United States. This interview is full of incredibly useful information that can help us respond to the top three prevalent myths of immigration. This conversation might change what you think you already know. Speaking of knowing, I just read a quote this past week from the historian Daniel Borston, who said, The greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, it is the illusion of knowledge. Who better to gain accurate knowledge from than the experts in their field? These amazing women have incredible stories all of their own to share. Their personal histories are just as inspiring as the work they do. What you do so often stems from who you are. These ladies are full of compassion, curiosity, drive, empathy, and knowledge. This well of character that springs forth from each of them is so apparent in the intensity of the work they provide for each and every client, the amount of devotion and effort they exert, as well as the reservoir of compassion they bestow on all who have the pleasure of meeting and working with them. In part one, I'll introduce you to my guest and we'll learn what prompted each of them to devote their careers to immigration law. Then we'll tackle the first myth, which is there is a right way to immigrate to the United States. Join me as we take the plunge and increase our knowledge of immigration law. Today I'm visiting with the beautiful lawyer ladies. We are in Longmont, Colorado, and I would like each of them to introduce themselves to you. So take it away. Hi, uh, my name is Rocio Rivera, and I work with the lawyer ladies, and I am a paralegal. I'm Autumn Nelson, and I'm a lawyer and founder of the lawyer Lady. I am Carla Crabster, also an attorney with the Lawyer Lady Firm, and I think I speak for us all when I say we're really excited to do this today. This is going to be a power-packed conversation. I am so excited about all the things I'm going to learn, Um, and because it's going to be so serious, before we start, I want to ask each of you a very, probably the most important question. Who is your favorite superhero and why? Our favorite superhero is us in five years. Um, We are always trying to learn new things and develop new skills. And our goal is to constantly improve, constantly learn, constantly develop new skills. So hopefully what we develop into in five years is going to be a superhero version of ourselves. That's a genius answer. And it's a group answer, right? Yeah. yeah. You guys don't have gets all the credit for it. That's, yeah. That comes from her genius brain. But yeah. I love she, that. Yeah. We thought it was pretty great. Well, let's jump right in. And I'd like to start by asking each one of you ladies, Rocio, Autumn, and Carla, how you got started in immigration law. So um, I got married very young and, um, well, not very young, but young enough that I didn't go to finish college before 
And when I had my son, after he was born, um, I decided that I still wanted to go to college because that was one of my dreams, especially for my family. Um, so I looked into a lot of programs and the only option I saw was enrolling into one of the local colleges and um, business administration was what's caught my eye mm -hmm. because I wanted to be like in an office setting and being able to help people in some way. Mm -hmm. So I enrolled, I started my first week and then I came across another program that that school offered, which was paralegal degree. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know what that was, and but something in it just kind of caught my eye. So I went home and did a lot of research and figured out that, you know, being a paralegal, helping an attorney, and their areas were, you know, criminal, immigration, family. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested by it. I ended up switching programs that same day. Excellent. I just went in and just, I said, I don't want to do business anymore. I want to well, do Well, when you know, you know, right? Yeah. So I did, and I went to school, and I finished, and I got my first job at an immigration firm, and it just it just all started there. I just, you know, the passion that I have for immigrants especially is what, you know, led me there. So you didn't know you had the passion for immigrants until you started working in that area, or had you always had this soft spot for immigrants? Always. Always. Um, just because of my family background. So my parents are from Mexico. Okay. And they immigrated here in the late 80s mm -hmm. on my dad first and then she, he brought over my mom mm -hmm. my dad was lucky enough to qualify for the immigration reform in the Wonderful. late 80s uh -huh. so he was able to get his green card and with that he was able to apply for my mom Fantastic. so you know they were very lucky yes. to be able to do that i was born in california uh-huh but a lot of my family that surrounded us was either undocumented or was waiting for their turn to get some sort of status mm -hmm. so I grew up seeing a lot of families just being really limited mm -hmm. to a lot of stuff mm -hmm. a lot of stuff and so so yeah immigration has always been part of my life yes I can tell no wonder you're so compassionate towards mm -hmm. it and passionate about yeah. it as well thank you for sharing that Rocio I yeah. appreciate that thank you okay Autumn you're on the hot seat. Okay. Well, for me, it wasn't so much my past education and previous jobs that led me to opening an immigration law firm, but rather life experiences mm -hmm. growing up as an outsider in the U.S. and feeling extremely vulnerable. Mm -hmm. As an immigrant and refugee myself, I've always identified with this population. When I was a child, my family and I fled war-torn and communist Vietnam by boat and came to the U.S. Mm. after spending some time in a refugee camp. I know firsthand what it feels like to come to a new country with an unfamiliar culture and language. Can I interrupt you for a minute? Mm -hmm. You fled on a boat. Yes. You're one of the boat people they talk about from Vietnam. Yes. Your family is. And <laughs> you're alive to tell us that story because so many people didn't make it. So many people perished. So was it just you and your parents or did you have a younger sibling or an older sibling? It was my mom and I. My dad left first. Mm -hmm. um, he fled on his own and ended up in a refugee camp in Guam. He was one of the southern Vietnamese soldiers who fought against the North. And oh so when the communists took over, his life was in yes. grave danger. So he fled and the U.S. Army helped him with obtaining um, refugee status mm -hmm. and coming to the United States. And it was an interesting story because my mom and I actually 
thought that he was dead because he left so quickly without word because he couldn't find us and he couldn't come back to tell us. Um, So it wasn't until a couple of years later that we learned from him when he was in the United States that he was still alive and he wanted us to escape as well. And so after that, my mom and I and some of his some of our extended mm-hmm. family um, hatched a plan to essentially escape. And by that time, the communists had already taken over. And so they were watching very carefully all the waterways out of Vietnam and oh, making sure God. that uh, people were in check. So it was it was a harrowing experience. And how old were you at the time? I was about four years old at the four time. Four years. Mm-hmm. I am trying to put myself in your mom's shoes, and you as well, where... You have no idea if your dad is alive or not. D- did he know you guys were going to do this? You probably he, weren't able to kind of communicate that because I'm sure the communists were intercepting information. Yes, they were. And in fact, um, how we received notice from him was a letter that he, he had a sponsor family in the United States. Mm-hmm. And he asked the sponsor, mom, essentially, I need, I need to find my wife and child and I need to send a letter to him. And um, so what is the best way to do this? Because if I sent it from the United States to Vietnam, mm-hmm. the communists are going to take it and rip mm-hmm. it up. So um, she had a plan of sending the letter to a friend of hers abroad, the sponsor mom, mm-hmm. who was living in Belgium. So a letter written by my father sent from the U.S. to Belgium and then put in another envelope so that it was Belgium to, to Vietnam after it was sent because Belgium was neutral during that time. So the communists had no reason to uh-huh. censor mail from Belgium. So the mail went to the local priest in Vietnam, where my mom's family would frequent. Uh-huh. And then the priest received the mail, gave it to my mom's father, and then my mom's father gave it to my mom. I am so impressed. This would make such an amazing story and a book. Have you started writing one yet? I, I finished the book. Oh, yay! Oh, good! I, I finished the book, but it's um, it's not for public... It's it's not to the public. It's for... Uh, it was a family memoir that I kept That's within amazing. the family so that my family would know what we went yes. through, especially my siblings who were born yes. in the United States and um, my children as well. Who well, are thank you for sharing that with us. You know, I, I know firsthand what it feels like to mm-hmm. be in a new country with a new language, new culture... And from the very beginning, my, me and my family experienced a lot of discrimination because mm-hmm. of our racial differences in appearance in a very homogeneous society. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that we were poor coming to the United States, we didn't have anything except for the clothes on our backs. Mm-hmm. We were uneducated. My mom graduated from sixth grade and that was it. Mm-hmm. My dad from high school, but not much more. We didn't speak English either. And so that made us really stand out. Um, not to mention the funky smells that came from our quote-unquote exotic cuisine. Mm-hmm. Everything about us just screamed foreigner. Yeah. Um, so the most empowering thing that I could do was to learn English, get naturalized as a United States citizen, get educated and learn the law so that I wouldn't be so vulnerable. And can, if you Can I ask one more question? Sure. Did your dad's sponsor family help you guys at all, like with the adjustment, or was there any organization that helped you learn how to integrate and adjust to the massive culture difference? Yes. At the time, uh, it was the 1970s and 80s, there were a lot of charities that were created and that had existed who were really interested in helping Vietnamese refugees. Mm -hmm. And um, the one that we worked with is Catholic Charities. Okay. So our sponsor family was through Catholic Charities. Um, 
they met my dad first, and then once we came to the United States, um, they welcomed us as well and helped us to find other sponsorship families because the more, the better. <laughs> there, were, there were certain people who would look out for our medical health. There were people who made sure that I enrolled in school. There were people mm -hmm. who gave us resources about where to learn English. Yeah, it took a village to help yeah, us. It, it definitely does. did. It does. Sorry to interrupt again. It's okay. It's okay. Um, so I had a few career detours, but once I started doing immigration, it felt very natural and it felt very full circle for my experiences. Mm -hmm. And now I help other immigrants and refugees who I think are among the most vulnerable populations in America. Can I give you some statistics? I would love okay, some so statistics. This is who we're talking about. There are 330 million people living in the U.S., the American Immigration Council estimates that 14% of the nation's residents are foreign-born. That's mm -hmm. 44.7 million people. And over half of them have become natural citizens. The largest percentage of immigrants came from Mexico at 25%. Mm -hmm. And there are 10.7 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. This number comprises 24% of the immigrant population and 3% of the U.S. population. So that's the population that I most identify with. That's really good. Okay, Carla. Oh my gosh. Uh, I hate that I'm going last after these two incredible stories <laughs> because theirs are, are so compelling and so moving. Um, I am just an insanely, ridiculously over-the-top, lucky, fortunate human being. I have had um, so much privilege in my life and I'm coming from such a great background, um, two fantastic, wonderful, caring parents, and mm -hmm. um, they really set me up well to succeed in life and made a lot of sacrifices to make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, I feel like the road was sort of paved in gold for me from, from day one, which is um, parents who cared so much and were so smart and hardworking themselves. Um, so... Yeah, I went to college at Texas A&M and always knew that I wanted to end up in law school. Went to law school at UT and it's very easy to just get in the feeder system there of, mm -hmm. you know, you're at a good law school, let's get you into a great firm. And mm -hmm. um, I just very easily fell into that and I ended up doing a couple different kinds of law, but mostly what I focused on was uh, just big commercial litigation. One company fighting another company. I was defending one of the companies. And yeah. um, it was, it never really felt like the perfect fit for me. I always wished that I could do something that I felt a little bit better about. And mm -hmm. mostly what I was doing was defending insurance companies. Um, so they would deny sort of like big business insurance. I don't think I could have done it if it were like more on a personal level, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. healthcare insurance or something like that, but big business insurance claims. And if the claim was denied, we would be defending the insurance company mm. and then litigating that. So um, it, it just never felt like the kind of thing that I could go to sleep at night and think, that was so great. Yeah, you know, I that insurance company that. denied that claim and I feel just like so amazing. And looking back on it in law school, my the closest friends that I had in law school, we would always say, you know, we're just gonna go to a big firm for a little while and get some good experience and, you know, make the big bucks for a while and then we'll do something that we really care about and 
Cool. I did that, but it lasted longer than I thought it would. Yeah. It's very easy to get sucked up into um, that lifestyle, and it's hard to pry yourself out of it. But my wonderful husband and I talked for many years about trying to do something better and different. Um, and so I guess I stuck it out for about 10 years. We, I was at a big firm for like wow. 10 years. And we decided, I think it, it was about four years in, to that 10 years um, that we decided, okay, let's just focus on saving as much money as we can and let's get out of this because mm -hmm. you're not happy, we're, we don't like this lifestyle. Um, so we stuck it out for like another six years and decided that we were gonna shift our focus in life and try to really give back and do something that we felt great about and that we loved. Um, so we started off with kind of a bang last year. We um, wanted to backpack the Pacific Crest Trail. So um, that's kind of how we kicked off our, our new life. We put everything we had in storage, everything that we hadn't sold, and put, put backpacks on our back, and we hiked almost a 1,000 miles. We didn't oh complete the goodness. whole trail. Um, what an incredible way to start off a new chapter in your life. It was... A great demarcation. Yeah, pretty unbeatable, just the time of our lives. Um, but it was such a fabulous experience for so many reasons. Um, the nature, obviously just being completely immersed in nature, mm -hmm. like that was so rewarding and peaceful and great. But it really wasn't the nature that made the experience. It was the people. Mm -hmm. Just all of the other hikers that we got to hike with and um, that we just think of as family now. And then all along the trail, there are these people called trail angels who will help the hikers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're out there and you are not entitled to anything, right? You're yeah. dirty and you're smelly and you're obviously a person from privilege because you're able to take all this time off to mm -hmm. go hike through the wilderness for months at a time. Mm -hmm. um, but even in spite of all that, there are so many people who are just incredibly generous to the hikers. It's awesome. And yeah, people just, they open their homes, they give you rides, they give you food. I had it's, no idea. Yeah. That is incredible. Just generosity for the sake of generosity. Yeah. Um, just 100% pure kindness. Um, and that affects you. you. It can't it help does. but affect you, can it? It really, really does. It's um, It just humbles you and makes you realize how good it feels to be on the receiving end of mm -hmm. it. And it makes you want to be on the other side of it, too. Mm -hmm. um, so that definitely was even more of an affirmation for, for me, certainly, um, that we... I wanted to do something to really give back. Mm -hmm. So um, as we were on our adventures, we um, talked a lot about, you know, where we're going to end up and what we want to do. And for me, um, I thought there are two things I could do with my law degree that I think would be great, either environmental law or immigration law. Um, just because, especially in the last few years, there's been so many changes. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you pay any attention at all to the news, you see all these headlines right about mm -hmm things that are being done to the immigrants um, and people who are trying to come to the United States. So um, we ended up here through sheer luck. I met Autumn's husband and uh, he told me that he had a wife who did immigration law. I was kind of giving him the short version of this long version that I'm giving you now. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think you should meet my wife. I think you guys would get along. And so we went to lunch one day and um, just completely headed off and it's just been absolute heaven ever since. I love the work that we're doing. It feels so, so good to help. And 
obviously could not ask for two mm -hmm. better people to do it with. So Lucky you. That's all any mm -hmm. of us hope for is a job that we love to go to every day, isn't it? I have one more question for you, Carla. You mentioned this in your um, what you were saying. You said something about privilege. What was your learning process or, or accepting of the white privilege that you were just talking about earlier? It's such a good question. I um, would love to sit here and say, oh, I've always been so self-aware, but that, that would be a lie. Um, yeah, I think when you are younger and almost everyone around you looks like you do, mm -hmm. it is so easy to just be completely blind to it mm -hmm. and to not have any idea that you're just um, incredibly fortunate. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's been kind of a long, slow awakening process. And um, the more that you read about it and the more you listen to other people's experience. Um, and even as recently as just working with you guys and hearing your stories and your backgrounds, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, I know more than ever now, and hopefully 10 years from now, I'll know even more. Yes, yes. It's an that, ongoing, yeah. constant learning process, isn't it? Yeah. Um, just how unbelievably fortunate I've been. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's so important for people to talk about it and to make others aware of it so that we sort of wake up from this dream that we live in where everything is perfect and easy for us. And So true. Yeah, realize that it's, it is not that way for everybody. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Immigrant and Refugee Center of Northern Colorado, making Northern Colorado a home for all who live here. Whatever circumstances brought you to Northern Colorado, we are so glad you're here now. IRC NOCO is here to help you find your way. We want to be the doorway through which cross-cultural sharing and experiences occur. Whether you are new to this area or you are a part of the receiving community, we want to be your resource for information and services related to moving our community forward together. Through information sharing, dialogue, and events where we can all come together as one, we are investing into our shared prosperity. Empower. Connect. Advocate. Learn more at www.ircnoco.org. Would you mind sharing with us what the biggest myths are that you encounter when it comes to immigration law? Well, we, we talked about this, and we've decided that our top three that we hear a lot are, number one, there is a quote-unquote right way to immigrate to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Number two, being illegal immigrants are taking all the jobs. Mm -hmm. And number three, illegal immigrants or quote-unquote bad hombres are coming to the U.S. to commit crimes. Yes, I hear these all the time. Let's take a deeper dive into these myths that you just listed. I'd love if one of you could debunk each of these. So let's start with the first one. How do you respond to someone who says, how hard can it be? I'm fine if they just come to America the right way. What is the right way and how hard is it? So I want Rocio to answer this question because she is our resident whiz on the, the different pathways to come here. Um, but just really, really quickly, as the resident Caucasian, I just want to 
throw out there that I think this right way myth is incredibly pervasive. Mm -hmm. I hear it so, so often, and that's mostly coming from from white people like me. So Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important that we um, call each other out on that when we hear that myth. And um, yeah, I just, I've heard it so, so many times and it always sounds almost exactly the same. I'm fine with you know, good people, and Autumn's going to touch on that, but these good people coming here, I'm fine with them coming here. I just don't understand why they can't do it the right way. And I just think that nobody has any idea how narrow the pathways are mm-hmm. and just how few pathways there are. Um, it's just, it's so far from the reality. I think there's this sort of vision, like, you get a background check and you get a green card. Like, why is this so hard for you? Yeah, right. And, it's that that is definitely not the reality. So I will be quiet and let Rocio tell you what the reality is. All right, Rocio. Oh man, this is a very a special topic. <laughs> so um, yeah, just like Carla said, we we always hear that, and I've heard that so many times where people just just immigrate the right way. How hard can it be? Just do it right, you know. Just stop breaking the law, but it's not really an option for a lot of people mm-hmm. and a lot of immigrants. I think if it was that easy for you just to apply for a green card and like Carla said, do a background check, okay, you're a good person, come on in. Mm -hmm. I think we wouldn't have, you know, a lot of immigrants coming here illegally. Mm -hmm. So that says a lot, just, you know, at that point. Mm -hmm. So um, it's more and much more complex than what a lot of people think. So I'll start with just explaining, you know, just the, the family, you know, visa green card process. Great. So as a U.S. citizen you have the right to petition for family members. And it's um, it's not like a chain migration like everybody believes where you can bring, you know, uncles, cousins, second cousins, and grandparents, and, the you know, how people believe, you know, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's really not, it's really limited. So U.S. citizens can only petition for what are called immediate relatives. Parents, children, and spouses are considered immediate relatives, but siblings... Um, they're in a different type of category, but you still have, you know, that option. Mm-hmm. As a legal permanent resident, you can only petition for spouses and children. That's all. You can't petition for your parents, no siblings, just spouses and children. I didn't know that. Legal mm-hmm. permanent residents yeah. can still petition, petition yeah. for... I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. That's so great. It's even more limited um, than a U.S. citizen, but I mean... At but they have they the have, option. At least they have that option, yes. So where... It all comes into play is the waiting times. Mm-hmm. Um, if a U.S. citizen is petitioning like their spouse um, or a parent, the process is pretty um, quick. If you know your family member doesn't have any, you know, immigration history, that can complicate the process. But usually, it could take up to one to two years, you know, for a U.S. citizen to bring over um, a parent or a spouse. Is this bringing over? Is this for them to become a citizen, or is this just to give them a green card to temporarily stay? How long mm-hmm. of a visit can these people have, yeah, these family so, members? Yeah, um, so for this process that I'm talking about, it's for a green card. A green it's card. It's for a green card, okay. yeah. Um, a tourist visa for the, somebody just to come over. Mm-hmm. It's a different okay. um, area and a different waiting time. Um, a lot of requirements that a lot of people don't meet. So, yeah, well, I'll, I'll get into that okay. a little bit. So, yeah, it takes time um, mm-hmm. for a sibling. Let's say as a U.S. citizen myself, 
I have, I had a, you know, a brother or sister that I wanted, you know, for her or him to come mm-hmm. over to the United States. If I petitioned for my brother or sister who is over 21 um, right now, he or she wouldn't be able to get a green card for at least 22 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so every country has a, ta- a table that explains, oh that goodness. gives you a visa waiting period. So siblings are the last at the table. And depending on the country you're coming from, there's a waiting time until there's a visa available for, you know, for the United States to give you one. So for Mexico, um, for a sibling, yeah, it takes about 22 years. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, so you, a lot of people will apply like as soon as they get here. Yeah. I yeah. can't imagine mm-hmm. waiting for your family that long. That long. And the the sad thing about that is, I mean, a lot of things can happen in 22 years. And oh, yeah. if the petitioner, like in this example, me, if something were to happen to me where I passed away, that petition is no, it's, it's gone. It's gone with me. <laughs> what about the fees that you pay? I know these fees are all quite gone. expensive as well. It's all gone. Yep. Nothing ever comes back. <laughs> so that's mm. always a really um, tough one. I've seen it in a few cases where petitions... Um, especially when it comes to parents, parents petitioning for children who have turned 21, um, that changes as well, the waiting time. Um, this is from legal permanent residents, sorry, of a, a legal permanent resident petitions for a child who is over 21, the waiting time then yet becomes again 20 something years. How unfortunate. So it's very, very long and it's not easy, um, so, so yeah, this chain migration idea that a lot of people have is mm-hmm. really not, not true at all. <laughs> so you call that chain migration? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you think, when people think that you're just inviting your, all your cousins and aunts and uncles and everybody to join you. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's very specific, costly mm-hmm. and long. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people who can, um, come here on a work visa, but, um, it's not easy. The first one is an agriculture worker. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of personal experience from this because my husband's family in Mexico, um, a lot of them come on this type of visa. Okay. But it took them years, like years, years, years to get it. And really? it takes contacts. Like it takes um, you knowing somebody who can help you get to that process. Okay. So it takes a sponsor, essentially. Wow. Um, so... You have to have a connection in the U.S. If you don't, you probably won't, you know, ever get this visa. Uh-huh. Um, but the visa, essentially, number one, requires a sponsor. Um, number two, it comes with a lot of restrictions, and it's temporary. So they only give you a couple months at a time for you to come and work mm-hmm. in the agriculture um, field. And you can't bring over family members. It's just you by yourself. So a lot of the people that come are usually you know, married men mm-hmm. um, who leave behind their wives, you know, a lot of children, and they don't see them for a long time, and all they do is work That's and sad. send literally their whole paycheck yeah. back to their country to be able to, you know, ha- help their family while they're gone. Well, I've also seen a lot of news about how the migrants are treated so poorly when they yes. do get here. So they have zero rights, pretty much, zero once rights. they come in on yeah. a agricultural visa. Mm-hmm. They're treated horribly by the farms that employ them. Yes. They're treated horribly mm-hmm. by the other employees. Mm-hmm. How sad. One of um, 
somebody I know personally um, has told us a lot of horror stories about that actually mm-hmm. where you know and this is here nearby where we are you know like in the Weld area Weld County area where you know they give them a trailer and 10 you know 10 men live there mm-hmm. in a two-bedroom and they just all share this tiny trailer they get up they're not allowed to go anywhere you know unless they ask for permission so um, it's almost like they're slaves or hostages. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Do you guys um, represent any people with these types of visas? Do, you, do, do cases come up where they need representation? Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't come across no. one yet, yeah. Um, they just don't want to make waves. They just put up with what they have to put up with and mm-hmm. get back home. Yeah, because all they oh. want to do is come here and earn the money yeah. that they would earn in years in Mexico. And this so, is the legal way to do it. And this is the legal way. And they're still treated <laughs> like yeah. dirt. So that's a really tough one. Um, so the other type of work visa that they that they have, it's called an H-1B. Um, this one is even harder to get than the first one that I mentioned. This one is for a person in a specialty occupation. Um, So pretty much um, you have to be certified by the Labor Department of the U.S. And the type of work that you do has to be um, something that a company can't find in any U.S. citizen. So the company trying to bring over, you know, this employee overseas has to provide proof and Carla will tell you a little bit of, of a personal experience about this, but um, they have to provide proof that they, you know, like interviewed and they went through this process to fi- um, hire somebody and they just couldn't find anybody. So their last resort is bringing this person that they're interested in overseas. So it's a it's really hard. And as you may imagine, a lot of, you know, immigrants that are wanting to come here for, you know, bettering their lives usually don't have a lot of education yeah. Let alone like a, a specialty, you know, a specialty <laughs> occupation yeah. that they can help. So, yeah, it's it's a really hard one. Um, so I'll let Carla give you that personal experience. Yeah, I just have a quick story about this. Okay. My um, husband is an engineer, and his company had hired somebody from Peru who works with Robert on his team, mm-hmm. and they had to jump through so many hoops to hire him in the first place. And it doesn't stop once you are hired. Um, you're here with your H-1B visa, and very regularly they would have to repost the job that they had hired um, this man for and uh, really? go through a process of accepting applications and doing interviews and like checking all of these boxes just to make sure that there wasn't a U.S. citizen who could do the job the same so yeah it's um it is a very real thing and so he did not have any job security because the company is constantly looking to replace him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how unfortunate yeah it's um it's very very tough to come here on an h1b visa and it's tough to get to stay here there are these are yeah a handful of other ways that you can come here you know we're touching on the biggest pathways today um but they're the others are equally as restrictive and limited as the ones we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what else? There's U visa, there's, there's fiancé, yeah. you know, there's lots of, um, there's humanitarian, there's, um, what's it called, the military benefits. 
There's you know, is there like a school. There's visa? derivative, like for coming from mm-hmm. university. There's an yeah. F one. There's you know student mm-hmm. visas. Yeah. So there's we do need to mention that there's other ways, but yeah. they are also very you know also very daunting and limited. It's the only other way, only other practical way to really come here, is as a refugee or as an asylum seeker. Mm-hmm. So you know there's so much in so much information on that those two processes that we don't have time to dive in today, but. Um, I do just want to cite a few statistics, okay. you know, to address some of the myths about the asylum seekers. Yes, And um, the misconception about, you know, people flooding, you know, they're just coming here to flood the U.S. and take our jobs away and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all those other myths we're going to talk about. In 2019, only 30,000 refugees were allowed into the country. And to put that in perspective, globally, there are over 70 million people who have been displaced from their homes because they're fleeing war persecution or conflict so you said 70 million not 7 million 70 million oh yeah. my goodness um so what we save is a tiny drop in the ocean of people who actually really need our help yes mm-hmm. so um the bar for gaining entry as a refugee is really really high or as an asylee mm-hmm. um you have to have received multiple death threats from you know the deadliest gang in the world as an example and there's a really good chance you still won't be granted asylum and you probably will be <laughs> sent Why? back home um, where you, even when your life has been threatened. Why do we do that? People, exactly. That's, that's the There's no reason we, for it. It's just that's yeah, the law, so this is what we law. do. Yeah. Um, especially with this administration, um, only ha- um, about half of the asylum seekers actually prevail and are granted status here. Um, so the rest are sent home. Under the current administration, after several stricter policies were put into place, it's now closer to a quarter of asylum seekers who are successful. Only a quarter, yeah. Does anybody in the government follow up with the people they've deported back? It seems like the U.S. government has a good riddance at attitude it about does sending seem people way. back to yeah. their home countries. Mm-hmm. They don't care to follow up afterwards with regard to whether they survive or not. Yeah, there's no official form of follow-up at all. It's um, just news organizations would be the only yeah. way. So that's all knowing. we hear. Mm-hmm. That breaks my heart. That is not a compassionate government, a compassionate policy at no, all. We could make it that way, though, couldn't we? Do other countries have like more of a compassionate immigration policy, or is this common in immigration around the world? Uh, I don't know that we can really speak to all the other countries and how much of a better or worse job that they do. But I do know that most countries have a cap on the number of refugees or Mm -hmm. asylees that they will accept every year. Um, And in the U.S., it it is very low. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's it's a very uh, dark and depressing thing to really look into. This is one one news article um, that I've read recently um, because it's relevant to one of our cases about a young boy who was 15 years old and living in Guatemala and he um, was targeted by the gang members. They wanted to recruit him and have him join their ranks, um, which is very common. I I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't realize Mm -hmm. that the gang members are often recruiting people by force. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, this one 15-year-old boy just kept resisting. He didn't want to join and they uh, beat him up uh, to try to persuade him to join. They raped his younger sister, so younger than 15, mm. as another tactic to get him to join. Um, he 
fled to um, the a region of Mexico that's that borders Guatemala mm-hmm. and thought that he would be safer there. Um, and six months later, the gang sent people um, to the region where they thought he might be, and they had people knocking on doors, um, giving his physical description in case he had changed his name so that they could find him. Um, and he was ultimately killed by the gang members. Just for not wanting to join. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, another news story about a, a young man who actually came to the United States seeking asylum um, and had been a victim of gang violence as well. And he was persuaded by somebody here in the United States that his asylum application just wasn't, wasn't going to succeed. It was just impossible, which sadly is probably true because mm-hmm. um, the it's become so much harder to get these days and gang violence in particular... Um, the U.S. has kind of said we want to wash our hands of this and there's just, there's too much gang violence. So if you're coming here seeking asylum from gang violence, we don't really want you. Um, so yeah, he was persuaded to withdraw his asylum application, was sent back, um, and stayed in his house for months, just terrified to go out. And finally one day, um, had to leave the house went out and was found dead in the trunk of a car uh, not too long after, and his body showed signs of having been tortured. Um, so, yeah, it's... Heart. Yeah, it's... there. The stories are, are very tough, and the danger is very real. It's um, a scary thing. How would you guys answer the rebuttal that, well, it's not our problem to help and fix these people, these countries who have... They can't take care of their own um, policing and they have their own gang problems. So why should it become our problem to help these people? How do you guys answer that type of rebuttal? Because I hear that a lot as well. Because we are all humans. Yeah, for humanity's sake. And for humanity's sake. Yeah. And as humans, we should care about other humans, mm-hmm. regardless of our borders, regardless of what country they come from, mm-hmm. what race, what nationality. Mm-hmm. It is just being human. Yeah, um, we kind of have that reputation that we take the people who are having a hard time, yet immigration policy has been very strict. We've had problem with immigration policy since the great immigration of in the 1890s through the 1920s, right? Well, since Europeans came to the United States when it was occupied by Native Americans, exactly. we had immigration problems. Yeah. And, you know, it comes down to privilege again, right? Being mm-hmm. privileged, living in this country where mm-hmm. you can enjoy the freedoms that so many have fought and died for. So we it want to limit very, that. It, it, could be very, it could be us at some point in the future as well, mm-hmm. seeking refuge, seeking exactly. asylum at another country that we're now denying people from, mm-hmm. from entering. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think as immigration lawyers, we view the world as, you know, from a more global perspective. You know, it's about humans helping humans versus about borders and about us mm-hmm. versus them. Us versus them never helps. It's no. the war mentality. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm so about, glad you spoke to that. We are about love. We are about inclusion. Mm-hmm. Well, you summed that up perfectly. What a beautiful summary of our discussion Autumn was just able to put in such precise words. Having a global mindset makes you a more compassionate human being. Wow, I need to think on that. Please join us for the conclusion of our conversation in part two of my interview with the lawyer lady in episode 10.